And now for the first time, we're going to be introduced to what it is that brings about this catastrophe that's going to befall uh, first those who are of the house of God, but aren't truly of God, and then the whole world. Uh, lesson four now, the great day of judgment. This is the coming of God, 7 through 18 of chapter 1. And what we're going to see is, is a recurring theme again throughout the book. The day of the Lord brings destruction for those who rebel against Him, but because of God's provision, the day of the Lord is a day of redemption for those who are invited by Him. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is the central theme of this book. Uh, the word day uh, is used 20 times in this book. Many verses speaking of the day of the Lord, 1-7 and 114, sometimes simply that day, 110 and 115, a couple of times in chapter 3. Uh, the great day of the Lord, 114, the day of the Lord's wrath, 118, the day of the Lord's anger, 2-3. Uh, 115 is the most descriptive, and it's using repetition to emphasize the severity of the day. A day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And this emphasis, this startling description, it really compels us to take a closer look at the concept here of the day of the Lord. William Van Gemmeren, in his great uh, book here, Interpreting the Prophetic Word, provides some helpful uh, categories for understanding the day of the Lord. Number one, the day of the Lord is a day of God's coming. We'll spend most of our time uh, on this one. The Old Testament conception of the coming of Yahweh, it wasn't necessarily understood by the Israelites as a day of the Messiah's coming, but as a day that Yahweh himself was going to come visit them. Uh, uh, Voss talks about that in, in his Eschatology of the Old Testament. It, it's It's... Yom Yahweh. It's the day of, of Yahweh. Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts has a day, Isaiah 2.12. And the day of Yahweh is the day that the Almighty will bring destruction, Isaiah 13.6. Malachi said, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And many Judahites naively thought then, God's coming. This is great news. And they presumptively thought that no matter their sinful condition, since we're God's people, God's going to come and He's going to judge the nations that oppress us. He's going to lift our kingdom to, to predominance. He's not going to punish His own people. We see this in Zephaniah 1.12, those people who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor, who, nor will He do ill. We saw this in the book of Amos. Zephaniah has a pretty stark message for them again. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. The Judahites are expecting the wine of God's blessing to fall on them, and instead they're going to face the wine of God's wrath. The feast that they're anticipating is going to be a feast of judgment. But for the faithful, the remnant who are about to be taken into captivity, they have a wonderful promise of restoration. The Lord himself is going to visit them. That's the heart and core of the covenant promise. I will be your God, you will be my people, Exodus 6 and verse 7. Now this covenant promise is going to come about in a tri-level fulfillment. On the first level is this near-term expectation of Zephaniah 
that judgment is going to be visited upon the Judahites uh, by the Babylonians. And that judgment reaches climax about a generation later in 586. And it would be a day of great calamity, death, destruction, but it was also result in deliverance. Right? 539, Cyrus issues his decree. He allows the Judahites to return home to rebuild. And the prophetic voices understood that wasn't all there is to it. There, there, there must be some more consummate fulfillment of our prophecy. But the more linear uh, fulfillment was the primary thing that their readers, their listeners are comprehending. But beyond this, Zephaniah also speaks of the coming of Yahweh in a greater sense. The Babylonian captivity was typological or a first level fulfillment of Zephaniah's prophecy. Just like the kingly line is typological of the kingship and the kingdom of Christ. The nation of Israel, typological of the spiritual seed of the church. The land of promise, typological of the eternal inheritance of God's people. The captivity to Babylon, the subsequent restoration, typological of a greater coming, a greater arrival of God. The consummation of the covenant promise, I will be with you. The coming of God, the coming of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who would enact cataclysmic judgment against the unfaithful and the unbelievers and provide for the restoration of his people. They didn't understand, many of them, that this speaks of the Messiah. O. Palmer Robertson, uh, in his wonderful commentary, really a fantastic commentary in Zephaniah, by the way, if you only have one commentary, uh, besides Camden's study, uh, Zephaniah's would be very good. Uh, he says this, so this is actually in Christ of the Prophets, uh, but he writes, Zephaniah's prophecy contains very little in terms of expectation regarding a coming messianic king. Instead, it's God himself who will be the mighty hero who saves his people. In one sense, this vision's correct, for only God himself could function as the savior of this sinful fallen humanity. This expectation, it's a shadow to some, but it's fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Jesus then is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us, Matthew 1, 23. Jesus is God himself made flesh. He is very God of very God, we confess. That is, he is God in and of himself. Jesus takes upon himself this title. He is the Lord. He demonstrates fully that the expectation of the coming of the Lord is fulfilled in his coming. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 8, Jesus declares himself to be the anticipated son of man. And all of the cloud imagery that's involved in that coming out of Daniel uh, chapter 7. Peter in Acts 10.36 declares that Christ is the Lord of all. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Paul, in, in Philippians 2.11. The coming of Yahweh then is none other than the coming of Christ. And there's a sense in which it can be said then that the day of the Lord, while speaking of particular judgment and redemption then, also speaks of the entire uh, a period between Christ's first and what we uh, conveniently refer to as the second coming, when he will put down all of the rule and authority and power, binding Satan as he has, setting captives free, giving light to the blind. This is what he does. In his incarnation, he begins the rule which will be fully consummated at his coming. And this coming of the Messiah is the second level of prophetic fulfillment here in Zephaniah. 
And it itself, the coming of Jesus, has a tri-level coming to it, if you will. First, Christ is incarnate. He remains incarnate. Jesus, in His incarnation, bears the humility of human existence. He is obedient to every jot and tittle of the law. And then as a covenant sacrifice, He provides His own death and judgment as a substitution for the death of the violators of the law. The full fury of the wrath of God visited upon the covenant sanctions of cursing for disobedience, which then Christ bears in fulfillment of the prophet to see to provide salvation for his people, Isaiah 53. And then we have Pentecost, the coming of God again, the coming of the Holy Spirit sent from the Father and the Son. John 14, 26, 15, 26 provides another level of fulfillment. His outpouring accompanied by supernatural signs marks the arrival of the last days. The apostles preach the kingdom of Christ as the fulfillment of the hopes that the prophets had spoken about. Peter declares this event is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of the day of the Lord. Pentecost, the event of Pentecost becomes the days then leading up to the third and final level of fulfillment, the consummation of Jesus Christ, which usually referred to as his second coming. And it's a convenient title, but it's a bit of a misnomer. In the New Testament, Paul describes the coming of Christ using the word parousia, revelation, simply the day. Uh, Voss, again, helpfully in his Pauline eschatology, uh, points out that the word parousia is absent the word again. It does not connote a return. It connotes an arrival. That's what Zephaniah is talking about. God is coming. It connotes primarily presence with the idea that the presence is realized by the way of coming as a secondary connotation, Klein remarks, in Images of the Spirit. The culmination of the Old Covenant promise, Zephaniah's promise, the promise of Exodus, the promise of the prophets, that God is going to dwell with His people ultimately is seen in this arrival, the presence of Christ. And when Christ's, uh, Klein puts it this way, when Christ's parousia is spoken of as a revelation in glory, as it is repeatedly, what is in view is the specific idea that Jesus is the embodiment of the theophanic glory of God revealed in the Old Testament. And so Judah is told, be silent. God is coming. He is speaking. It's in terminology that's couched in covenant language. The First Thessalonians 4.16 describes the coming of Christ as taking place with the voice of an archangel. Think back now to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. As God's voice is again heard with a shout of command, speaking in judgment. Klein puts it this way in Images of Spirit. The cosmos shaking voice of the Lord as he speaks from heaven at the eschatological judgment will answer to the terrifying earth-shattering voice of God in his ancient descent in the theophonic cloud with the sound of trumpet and the voice of words on Sinai in the garden at Sinai. God comes. Zephaniah says he's coming. Paul's conception of the day of Christ's coming, it harmonizes with Zephaniah's picture here of the day as one of great calamity and sudden justice. It's a day which arrives as a thief in the night or as labor pains come upon a woman prepared to give birth. So, Zephaniah 
in revealing the day of the Lord is giving us a foretaste of the coming of God in Christ, in which all evil is going to be purged and God's people will realize a full and final salvation. The day of the Lord is the day of the coming of God. The day of the Lord is also a day of past and future significance. We looked at a couple aspects of its future significance, but we should also note that the day of the Lord was an eschatological day which had connections with past prototypes. It's a day that's anticipated in protology. We've already seen some of this in Zephaniah. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, we read of the coming of God. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Klein calls this the big blaze, an improvement over the big bang. And then he further uh, refines that to speak of the indoxation of the Spirit. We refer back to Lane Tipson's lecture at the 2021 conference. did a great job uh, ex- extrapolating some of the significance of that. It was, Klein writes, a beaming forth of the one who gives himself as creator the name of Alpha. More precisely than the big blaze was an epiphanic effulgence. It was an Alpha radiation. This is the prototypical day of the Lord. The appearance of God, a pre-redemptive scene repeated at high points of redemptive history. We read of the coming of God, the voice of the Lord in His presence in the garden temple, the judgment of the Lord, the glory of God seen in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God moving is moving again in Genesis 3-8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What a deceptive translation. (laughs) It's not talking about God taking a stroll and enjoying the evening breeze like we are. It's a cloud of judgment. And then we find throughout Scripture that the presence of God's Spirit is linked with the enforcement of God's covenant. The Spirit is representative of God's presence and glory. The judges of Israel, the rules of Israel, are often described as those upon whom the Spirit of the Lord has come. Isaiah describes the spirit of judgment. And so, God's coming. They hear the sound or the voice of God. The, way, the word sound there in Genesis 3 is stark. It rolling like thunder over the garden. God moves toward Adam and Eve. And the word walking isn't the word strolling. God's meandering about the garden, enjoying the flowers. In the Hebrew, it's what we would call reflexive. It emphasizes God's own action. It has the idea of walking back and forth and up and down, intentional, purposeful. He's going somewhere. The Greek equivalent uses a word, by the way, to speak of the activity of Satan as he prowls the earth, seeking whom he may devour. And in the garden, he devours, and God comes, and he delivers, but not before he acts in judgment. Genesis 3.8 is a terrifying scene. God's going straight for Adam and Eve. They violated the covenant agreement. They're in his house. They're in his temple. They're in his garden and they've broken his covenant with them. Klein puts it this way, an image of the Spirit. The frightening noise of the approaching glory theophany told them that God was coming to enter into judgment with them. 
but he does something else. He also provides the first promise of redemption. We see a prototype again of the day of the Lord in the flood event. We've touched on it, right? God is going to destroy the earth with fire as he ushers in a new creation as he did with flood, the first creation. You see it in the Tower of Babel. We'll see that a little bit later. Another picture of the day of the Lord. Humankind assembles in rebellion. They build their pagan temple to bring God down to them. And guess what? God comes down. But it's not what they expected. Genesis 11.5 says, The Lord came down to see. He wasn't curious. He came down to judge with the scattering of languages. And this diffusion of languages... Zephaniah tells us, is something that's going to be reversed. Language is going to be restored. A unified language. Humankind is going to be regathered. We see another prototype of the day of the Lord in the Exodus event. The cloud of God's glory and judgment leads His people out of bondage by inflicting judgment on the enemy. Terror is inflicted by God on the enemy. Why? To save His people, demonstrating that the salvation of the Lord the day of the Lord, not only something to be anticipated, also something to be looked back upon. And so there's lots of prototypes then of the day of the Lord throughout the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah, the invasion of Canaan, the descent of God on the tabernacle and on the temple. I mean, we're just looking at some of the high points. But every such event is a microcosm of the final act of judgment and salvation that'll be on all created order. And that's the third characteristic of the day of the Lord then. It's a judgment upon all created order. And we notice that coming right out of the gate here in Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3. And that's why the connection is made with the Noahic covenant, the elements of consuming judgment while the earth remains. Again, tells us that the day of judgment is going to come. The earth won't remain one day. And so we see Zephaniah speaking of the final judgment of the world. And that judgment on the created order is also seen in the origin of the, of the day of the Lord concept is found in protology. It's found in the creation days. Each of the days of creation contains a pronouncement of a judicial good on that work, upon the work of that day. And the seventh day is the Lord's day, or the day of the Lord, the Sabbath rest, the day of the judicial session of the Creator, surveying the ongoing and providing and doing an ongoing work of judgment that occupies the king until he comes back. And so to the day of the Lord, when God comes to judge Adam and Eve, a day of judgment on all created order. A fourth characteristic, the day of the Lord will be a day of submission to the regal rule of God. That's a big one in Zephaniah 2.11. The Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations, willing or unwilling, Isaiah says. Unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear on that day. And you know, of course, that Paul uh, picks that up. It's for this reason then, that Zephaniah calls for silence because the court is in session and God stands as judge. Habakkuk 2, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A submission that points to a submission that all will demonstrate before Jesus. 
The Day of the Lord is also a day of purification, and we've seen this a bit, we'll see it more. The day of separation of the righteous from the wicked as the light and the darkness are separated at the dawn of creation. And in Zephaniah 3.13, we'll see this and throughout. Zephaniah speaks of, of judgment ringing chords of terror for the unbeliever, but those same chords are the harmonic sound of grace for those who would be brought out from among them, the remnant. Most significantly, uh, the day of the Lord then is also a day of redemption. And we'll look at this particularly when we get down to Zephaniah 3.13 to 20, the faithful anticipated hope and salvation. The judgment of God brings a consciousness of sin for the Christian. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will, br- he will bring me forth to the light, Micah 7, 9. And the light of hope, of course, is none other than the anticipation of the Messiah. He is the light. He's the light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42, 6. He's the one who opens blind eyes and enables the light in so that they can see. Christ takes the prophetic role upon himself and declares that he is the one sent from God to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, Luke 4, quoting Isaiah. And so we see a command to silence. You may remember that verse 6 spoke of the judgment that would come upon Judah because they did not seek the Lord. And there would be those in Judah, I'm sure, who who would protest, uh, but we did seek you. (laughs) What are you talking about? We sacrifice all the time. The punishment's too harsh. Zephaniah, you're too negative. Silence, God says. And day of the Lord, there's nothing for you to say in your defense. It parallels with Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, the last seal, a judgment is opened. The day of the Lord is coming. We read there's silence. There's nothing to say. And verse 7 emphasizes, I think, the creator-creature distinction. Zephaniah has told us, showed us, how they blend the creator and the creature, their idolatry. Now we see the creator-creature distinction. In the presence of the creator, the creature must be silent. He can't protest his judgment. He can't offer a defense of his sin. So the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. This is not an atoning sacrifice. This is a judgment sacrifice. There's a lot that's been written on the divine warrior motif, and we can't get too specific in it. We'll see a little bit more of it later in Zephaniah, but it's certainly something that you see throughout the book. God punishes the kings. He plunders their houses, uh, 113. The mighty man who cries aloud when they hear the bitter sound of the day of the Lord, 114. The day of trumpet, blast, and battle cry, verse 16. The judgment that God delivers upon the oppressing nations, which we'll see in chapter 2, the cloud imagery uh, in Zephaniah. This language of God consecrating a sacrifice is part of that imagery. And it's a similar language to what we read in Isaiah 34, 6. We read it in Ezekiel 39, 17 through 20. Pretty dramatic. Read it. Birds and beasts eating the flesh of the rebellious. And of course, what's that pointing forward to? The day of the Lord. You see in Revelation chapter 19, when the angels call out to the birds and say, Come, gather for the supper, the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, small and great, 
those for whom Christ's blood does not atone, cannot atone for themselves. They will be sacrificed, Zephaniah says. And then the consequences of their sin in verses 8 and 9. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Zephaniah is going after the king. He's addressing those sins of the royal court, the kings of Judah. They were to be pictures of Christ, the messianic king to come. They were to be pictures of that messianic rule. They were the rule of God's anointed. They were to lead the people in righteousness. They were to emulate holiness in an implicit reference to violations of the Davidic covenant. The royalty is indicted. And there's a notable omission of the punishment of the king himself, presumably uh, Josiah here but the king's sons. He's going after the king's house. The princes seem to be alluded to here. Three of Josiah's sons will go on to sit on the throne. That's pretty unusual. Jehoahaz reigns three whole months. Jehoiakim, the most evil king Judah knows besides Manasseh, the murderer of Uriah the prophet, submits to the power of Nebuchadnezzar. After three years, he rebels, leads to the siege of Jerusalem, The youngest son of Josiah, Zedekiah, is put on the throne as a puppet uh, by the Babylonians. He's there when the Babylonians sack Jerusalem in 586. They take Zedekiah to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and there in front of Nebuchadnezzar's eyes, or in front of Zedekiah's own eyes, his sons are executed, and then they gouge his eyes out, so it's the last thing he ever sees, and then he's sent to Babylon to die. God will dethrone the princes. And not only will the king's sons face punishment, but God would punish all those who leap over the threshold. This uh, perhaps is a, a, an allusion to the custom of the Philistines uh, who would not step on the threshold of the house of Dagon. Uh, they would step over uh, the threshold. And there's a bit of an irony here in the last part of verse 9, as they are those who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. To the Israelites, they adopt the pagan practices of, of, the, of false worship and they're so concerned about the minutiae, the, the minor rubrics of pagan worship, but they fill the house of God with violations of His law. And then the account of that day in verses 10 through 13, on that day declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent and those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they shall build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink from them. On that day, on the great day of the Lord, a mournful cry would come from the fish gate, the second quarter of the hills. These seem to designate three uh, parts of the city and the hills surrounding the city. We don't know exactly where those things were uh, located. Most of the folks think that this is probably located in the northern part of the city, which would kind of fit uh, the invasion of uh, Jerusalem from uh, the north. It would 
probably fit the ample uh, fish trade that would be in, in the north, uh, fits well for the geography there, the Mediterranean, all that. Uh, Jeremiah speaks of the judgment that would come from the north as disaster appears out of the north in Jeremiah uh, 6.1. People come from the north country, uh, Jeremiah 6.22. What are we seeing here again? It's emphasizing the all-comprehensive nature of God's judgment again. You're not going to find salvation there. Jeremiah declared that in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills, from the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Now the false sense of security, the altars of the gods of the hills are going to be destroyed. The word mortar in verse 11 probably refers to the, to the merchant district. Uh, the NIV translates it market district. Uh, but the word is only used, as far as I could tell, one other time. And that's in, back in Proverbs 27 where uh, it says, grind a fool into a mortar. The, the word probably means something like a molar, uh, a mortar, a grinding into powder. God's going to grind the city to dust. I think we have here a picture of humanity being decreated, returning to the point of their origin. It's another reversal of creation. God's going to grind it to powder. Everything's going to be destroyed. Even the economic wealth that they trusted in so vitally. All the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. Because the searching and penetrating light, Zephaniah says, would fall upon Judah. The one who created light from nothing would call forth light out of the desolation of the darkness of Judah and would search Jerusalem with lamps. This should make you think of Revelation 19. His eyes are like a flame of fire. What's that signify? The penetrating, pure gaze of Christ's judgment that torches every facade, burning through every layer of insincerity, revealing every sin with the blazing light of his eyes. The judgment of God comes against them in the garden. And so when God comes against them now in judgment, there's no place to hide. I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Don't think dim oil lamps. Think the concentrated light of the blazing sun. The reason for this punishment, their complacency and self-deception. The people of, of Judah had fooled themselves into thinking that God's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. He's not going to live up to his covenant promises. And he's not going to enforce the covenant sanctions. The Lord won't do good. He won't do ill, verse 12. All their labor, though, would come to nothing. All that they hoped for in their own salvation, no material prosperity would come to nothing. For their obedience, the children of Israel were to be rewarded with grain and new wine, covenant sanction, right? The work of their hands would be productive, Deuteronomy 7. Or Genesis 1, 8, 28, they'd be productive. The, the new wine, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, God would bless them. They would experience the temporal reverse of the fall, a temporary reverse of the fall. The thorns and the thistles, they wouldn't get the upper hand. They'd prosper in their work. They would bring forth fruit if they were obedient. Proverbs full of those principles. They would establish dominion over the earth. They would have the ability to create wealth. Well, here now, because they have sinned, here the economic disaster that's going to befall them. It speaks of the full effects of the curse in the typological realm as well as the spiritual realm. We see a picture of this, by the way, in Revelation 17 and 18. 
you see there in 17 and 18 of Revelation, a picture of the kings and the merchants and the sailors as they mourn over the loss of all of their wealth and all of their work. It's only the grace of God that holds back the full effect of the fall because of the sin of humanity. But on the day of God's judgment, the full effects of the curse will fall on sinners and they'll drink not of the wine they've planted, but they'll drink of the wine of God's wrath. Revelation 14. And next we'll see how God gathers the rebellious for that judgment.